Um, if you guys want to go ahead and stand with me, stand and, and turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13. Today we're going to be looking at the Apostle Paul's first recorded sermon that's given to us in the book of Acts. The very first sermon of the Apostle Paul. And uh, since this, this is such a lengthy sermon by the Apostle Paul, and it covers verses 16 all the way to verse 41, what we're going to do is we're just going to read a couple verses now, a couple verses in preparation um, for this uh, sermon, and then we'll pray. So let's read together Acts chapter 13, verses 38 and 39. Verses 38 and 39, it says, Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through him forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And through him, everyone who believes is freed from all things from which you could not be freed through the law of Moses. Let's pray. Well, Father, you have, God, in your faithfulness, gathered us all together, God, to have your word, your gospel preached to us. And Father, I pray that you would stir us up. Father, stir up and bless my mouth, bless um, our ears, bless our minds. Father, let us take um, heed at your word. Let us take advantage of having your word given to us. The very gospel that was presented by the Apostle Paul, you have written down for us. Father, this is all in your grace, all in your mercy. Father, honor, honor us, Father, in this preaching of your word today, God. Let us not take it for granted. Bless your church. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. You may be seated. Well, it was last Wednesday that I headed out to the campus of UNT with a couple of the soldiers uh, from our church. And out there, we did some evangelism. We were preaching. We were passing out tracts. We were doing some one-on-one -on -one evangelism. Um, and throughout the day, um, I had the honor of sharing the gospel with three guys, three guys. The first guy I spoke to was a Roman Catholic. His name was Jacob. The second guy uh, that I got to talk to um, was a Muslim named Mohammed. A Muslim named Mohammed. I don't know why you're laughing. Um, the third uh, that John and I both got to share the gospel with was a professing atheist. And his name was, was Ronnie or Rodney. Do you, do you remember John? It was Ronnie or Rodney, I think. Um, and so just in that short amount of time that we were out there sharing the gospel with people, um, I really had just a very broad spectrum of, of folks that I got to talk to. It was a very broad spectrum of um, religious beliefs, of presuppositions, of um, different backgrounds. All of these guys that I talked to were, were so different. And so what I want us to take home from this message today that the Apostle Paul preaches, I want to encourage you, 
um, as we look at the Apostle Paul's sermon here, this first sermon of his in the book of Acts, I want you to, to understand that if you are to study um, just this section of Scripture alone, if you're to study this sermon found in Acts 13 by the Apostle Paul, um, you would be more than equipped, you would be more than ready um, to share the gospel in a sufficient and God-glorifying way to anyone you meet, whether you run into a Roman Catholic, um, a professing atheist, a Mormon, a, 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 a Muslim, whoever. Just this text of Scripture, the Apostle Paul presents the gospel to us in its fullness. And so we, I want you to, to know the gospel and to be able to share the gospel. And if, and if you aren't good at that, if you haven't um, been able to do that in the past, if, if you just haven't put everything together, this text right here is a, is a text that is perfect for you um, to, to, to gain that understanding of the gospel and a lot of the, the facets that go around with it. Um, I've heard James White say, most of you know James White, um, James White's just a, a very faithful Christian apologist, very well-rounded Christian apologist. He debates everybody. Um, James White used to go to Utah to evangelize the Mormons. And I've heard James White say that he would rather take somebody with him to evangelize those Mormons um, who has a, a, a full grasp of the gospel of Jesus Christ, who knows it in and out, backwards and forwards, can share the gospel from the scriptures. He would rather take anyone that knows the gospel like that with him to preach to the Mormons than somebody who knows every single facet of Mormonism, knows every single um, in and out and, and argument and, and falsity and, and every heresy of the Mormonism. He would rather have somebody who knows the gospel and knows nothing about Mormonism whatsoever, he would rather have that person with him than an expert at all the falsehoods of Mormonism. And so why is that? Why would he rather have somebody who just simply knows the gospel than to have an expert in, in all the things Mormon? Well, the reason is because the, the, the gospel is sufficient, and there is no substitute for the gospel itself. There's no apologetic argument. There's no... Um, pointing out of others' error that is going to do the job of the gospel. Because when you're out there trying to share the gospel with people, your goal is not to just make them look dumb and to prove them wrong and to prove their religion and their prophet wrong. That's not your goal. Your goal is to share Christ with them and to put Christ before them and tell them how to gain Christ and make it clear. That's your goal. And so we want you to have the gospel the gospel um, cannot be misunderstood. You cannot get the gospel wrong. The gospel has eternal consequences. You cannot get this wrong. Um, so now, as I said, in the grace of God, he has given to us a section of scripture that is devoted to Luke's recounting of the Apostle Paul's gospel presentation the context of this sermon that we have here, um, the Apostle Paul has just been sent out from his, from his home church in Antioch. They've just sent him, Barnabas, and John Mark out 
um, they're beginning what is known as Paul's first missionary journey. So we have Paul, Barnabas, John Mark, they've, they've sailed from Antioch, they sailed to that island called Cyprus in the middle of the Mediterranean, they've, they've gone north from there, um, all the way up into a city called Pisidian Antioch, Pisidian Antioch, and that's where um, we find Paul here in our text, in Acts chapter 13. Paul, as is his custom, he always enters the synagogues of the cities that he goes into. He enters the synagogues, and there, um, let's pick up together with Paul in Acts chapter 13, verse 14. Acts chapter 13, verse 14. It says, but going on from Persia, they arrived at Pisidian Antioch. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading of the law and the prophets, the synagogue officials sent to them saying, Brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say it. And so the Apostle Paul here gets an open invitation to share the gospel, an open invitation for, to give a word of exhortation. And as you can expect, the Apostle Paul is more than ready to, to give a word. He's going to take uh, these synagogue officials up on that offer for sure. And now we all know that the Apostle Paul is a Baptist. We see this in the, the, the three points of his sermon here. He's going to give a nice, clean, three-point sermon here in this synagogue. The first point he's going to make and that he's going to show us is that the Apostle Paul is going to lay the foundation of his entire message by surveying the history of God's dealings with the people of Israel. He's going to do a, a very brief survey of the Old Testament. Second, Paul's going to explain how all of the Old Testament history um, leads and point to and, and finalizes in Jesus Christ. We're going to see all of this today. And then lastly, after presenting everything that God's done through history, through Israel, leading to Christ, at the end, he's, in his finality, he's going to call for a response of faith in this gospel message. That's what we're going to see. The Apostle Paul um, working through all of God's workings with, with the history of Israel. He's going he's to lead it all to Christ, and he's going to tell these people how to get Christ. And he's going to say it's by faith. So let's make our way through this first section of, of Paul's first sermon. And uh, as I said, this is just a little recap of God's history and his dealings with the people of Israel. Verse 16, Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. And so just really quickly to set the stage a little bit more, as it was very normal um, in the synagogues, there was the Jews there, the, the natural descendants of the people of, of Israel, the descendants of Abraham by blood, they were there, and those who fear God, which is the designation of these, this people group called the God-fearers. These were Gentiles, Gentiles actually in the synagogue here, um, and they were there because they feared the God of the Old Testament. They believed in the God of the Old Testament. They followed the Torah. They followed the teachings of Moses. 
And they were in the synagogue there to worship God and to hear the word of God that was preached in the synagogues. They were called God-fearers, just like Cornelius was called a God-fearer in Acts chapter 10, a Gentile who feared the Lord. Now, these God-fearers, um, they didn't go as far. Uh, they went up to the point of being circumcised and no farther. They weren't that committed, you know. They weren't that committed, but they did believe. They did believe in the God of the Old Testament. And so that's who Paul is preaching to. There's Jews and Gentiles in this synagogue. And Paul begins his sermon by saying, verse 17, the God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers. God chose our fathers. So not only is Paul a Baptist, Paul's a Calvinistic Baptist. Because Paul starts his sermon with election, with the sovereign election of the people of Israel. Why do I call it sovereign election? Well, because the choice of God to use and to bless and to honor and to reveal himself and to give scripture to the people of Israel, he only did that with the people of Israel because based on his own sovereign pleasure and, and will. It was only by the grace of God that God did all of these things with the people of Israel. It was most certainly not because they were worthy in any sense. They hadn't earned the revelation of God. They hadn't earned these blessings. God in his sovereignty said, I'm going to bless Israel. And we are also likewise blessed to have um, God specifically say why he chose Israel. Well, why did he choose them? If it wasn't because they were anything special, if it wasn't because they were better than the other nations, bigger than the other nations, um, why is it that God chose to reveal himself to the people of Israel? Turn in your Bible to Deuteronomy chapter 7. Deuteronomy chapter 7. Um, I want you to know why God chose in his sovereignty the people of Israel. Because God tells us in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 7, Verse 7 and 8. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 7 says, The Lord did not set his love on you, nor choose you, because you were more in number than any of the peoples. So first he tells us why he did not choose them. He didn't choose them because they were more in numbers, for they were actually the fewest of all the peoples. And verse 8 tells us why he did choose them. But because the Lord loved you. That's the reason right there. God loved them. He chose to love them. That's why he set his love on Israel. There was nothing in them. They were not special. He even goes on to, in verse 8 here to explain a little further. But because the Lord loved you, that's why he chose them. And to keep the oath which he swore to their forefathers. The Lord brought you out by a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh king of Egypt. So two things really why God chose to bless the people of Israel. First and primarily, he just chose to. He just chose to love them. Um, and secondly, he was also fulfilling a promise that he had made to a man named Abraham all the way back in Genesis 12. Um, the people of Israel um, benefited from a promise that God made to a man all the way back in Genesis 12. 
And because of that promise, they received all of the blessing, all of the revelation, all of the covenants, all of the promises, simply because God had made a promise to uh, their great-great-grandfather. Verse 17, again, it says, sorry, back in Acts chapter 13, verse 17, the God of this people Israel uh, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt, and with an uplifted arm, he led them out from it. And so here in recounting the history of the people of Israel, um, Paul is here speaking of the exodus. The exodus and, and the salvation of the people of Israel from Pharaoh and from his armies. Verse 18 says, For a period of about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And so the next step in this process was even after Israel had this miraculous deliverance from Pharaoh, if you remember back to all of the plagues that, that God brought upon the people of Egypt, you remember the Passover, you remember the frogs, you remember the locusts, all of these things. I remember the parting of the Red Sea, um, the crushing of Egypt and all his, uh, Pharaoh and all his uh, armies. Um, despite all of seeing all of this, the people of Israel um, failed to, fi- to fear the Lord properly. Even after seeing all of this, they failed to be faithful. And so, so the text says, uh, for 40 years, God put up with them in the wilderness. God in his mercy put up with them for 40 years. Paul goes on in verse 19, he says, And after that, when he had destroyed seven nations... In the land of Canaan, he distributed their land as an inheritance, all of which took about 450 years. And so this this totaling up of the years um, is is first the the 400 years that they were under Egyptian bondage, um, plus the 40 years they were in wandering, plus the 10 years that it took to, to do this conquest of these seven nations Um, in the land of Canaan. This conquest of the promised land, the land of Canaan, that's what what we've been studying in our men's study. That's what the book of Joshua is describing, this conquest of the promised land. Um, That's that's what we've been looking at um, in depth in our our men's fellowship. Um, This distribution of the promised land that God gave Israel was all due, was all harking back to that promise that God made to Abraham in Genesis 12. You know, that, that, that atheist that I mentioned um, at UNT Wednesday, that, that atheist that me and John got to talk to, um, he was attempting to have a, a moral objection um, to the way that the people of Israel took over the promised land, the way that they took over the land of Canaan um, that God had promised them, which was by war. Um, this this professing atheist chose to use the word genocide, you know, to, to bring in the obvious negative uh, connotations with it. Um, but the conquest of the promised land was, was in no way an unjust genocide um, instigated by the people of Israel. If you've read the book of Joshua, if you remember uh, what you read in the book of Joshua, um, you remember that the people of Israel really didn't even want that land in the first place. They were terrified of the people there. They literally had to be forced to do it. It wasn't some uh, willing um, mass 
random act of, of mass genocide uh, by some people who just wanted to use re- religion as an excuse to murder and, and pillage. That's not what was going on at all. Um, God, God didn't even give Israel this land uh, because they were any better than the sinners in it. Um, again, just as God told us why he um, saved the people of Israel, why he blessed them, he, he revealed that to us in Deuteronomy 7. So in Deuteronomy chapter 9, he reveals to us here why he uh, uh, fulfilled and, and, and had Israel do this conquest and this war against the people in Canaan. Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 5. Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 5. Here God likewise is going to reveal to us why and why... Um, why that the people of Israel, it wasn't of them to do this conquest. Deuteronomy 9, verse 5. There it says, God speaking to the people of Israel, It is not for your righteousness or for the uprightness of your heart that you're going to possess their land, but it is because the wickedness of these nations that the Lord your God is driving them out before you. It's the wickedness of these nations And he goes on, likewise, just like in Deuteronomy 7, in order to confirm the oath which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Know then, it is not because of your righteousness that the Lord is giving you this good land to possess, for you are a stubborn people. And so there we see what it wasn't. It wasn't the the, uh, high and holy and snob-nosed Israelites who just thought that they could do whatever they wanted and run over another people and murder them. And that's not what was going on. This was, this was God choosing in his sovereignty to deal out his justice using the people of Israel. And, and he's dealing out his, his justice on these people who rightly, right, rightfully deserved it um, in the land of Canaan. This was justice being meted out. Nothing unjust about it. And at the same time, as, as God is punishing these sinners for their sins, he says he's also, at the same time, confirming again the covenant he made with Abraham. And so we really see the sovereignty of God as providence over all of history. Um, the reasons behind the things that happen, even war. God in his sovereignty is giving his people a land um, because he promised it to them, and at the same time, uh, punishing a people group for their sins against him. God's working all of these things out in his sovereignty. And so Paul going on here, back in Acts 13, going on here, working through the history of Israel, in verse 20, Paul says, After these things he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And after he had removed him, which is the very polite way of speaking of the removal of Saul, he raised up David to be their king, concerning whom he also testified and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all of my will. And so with that, with King David, Paul concludes this little history lesson of the people of Israel. Now, 
as we've seen here in Acts 13, this little brief history lesson of the people of Israel, um, I just want to, again, um, encourage you with this passage, with this text, because this is a very uh, good place to start if you've never really put together in your mind a timeline of God's dealings with the people of Israel. Um, if you've never really developed in your head a, a very systematic timeline of how God was working throughout the Old Testament. We'll study just these few verses right here. Verses 17 through 22. Familiarize with yourself with it. Grab a study Bible. Figure out even more than what I just said who these people are. What were they doing? What books of the Bible were they in? What was God doing with these people? Because um, in this text, Paul's bringing out some of the most significant people uh, that God used in his dealings with the people of Israel. And so I'll just point you to this little section right here, very nice and neat little section of the Old Testament, in case in your mind, the, the, all of the Old Testament is still just a mishmash of events and people and names and times and places, and you don't, you don't know what God was doing in what order. Um, use this section just as a, a very brief framework, a very basic pr uh, framework in a timeline of God's uh, dealings with his people and, and, and putting them in their, their order. Just start with something very basic like this. That's how you do it. That's how you, you finally grasp these thousands of pages back here and put them in some sort of order in your mind. You know, I had a buddy um, growing up um, throughout my high school years, even through college, I had a buddy who knew everything about college basketball. He knew every team. He knew every coach. He knew every school. He knew every player. I mean, it was amazing. I asked my buddy, I said, Grady, how in the world do you know all that? How did you learn all of that? I mean, I'm hanging out with you all the time. I don't know when, I can't get all this. Um, how, did, how did you develop all this, this vast wealth of knowledge and systematize it from everything that there is? There's just too much. There's too many teams. There's too many players. How would you do this? And I've never forgotten his response. It was very prophetic. It was very helpful. He told me how he did it. He said, what you do is you pick one team. You pick one team and you study that team. You love that team. You devote yourself to watching that team, cheering for that team. You learn everything about that team, about the players, about the coach. And you learn one team. And what's going to happen over time as you, as you know that the men and the people on this team, as that team starts playing other teams, all of a sudden you see these interactions with your team and these other teams and you start picking up and learning about other players and where they're from and you follow these players as they move to other teams and next thing you know, all the interaction with the, the very limited team that you knew, you start picking up on on all of these players and all of these teams, you follow these players throughout their careers, throughout their whole lives. Next thing you know, you're like my buddy who just knows everything. But that's what, how we want you to be about the Old Testament. We don't want you to forget about your Old Testament. We want you to just start with a basic timeline. Learn the people that, that he's just talked about. Learn about Moses and Abraham and King David. These guys. Learn about them. And then as you read the Bible and if, as you just hear texts, even if they're not in, in order, you'll, you'll start putting together the timeline of how God worked in the Old Testament. Um, the Old Testament matters. That's why we're about to study a book called Jesus on Every Page. It matters because of Jesus. That's why it matters. 
If you love Jesus, you should love the Old Testament. You should want to learn it. Here, right here in our text now, is a prime example of why the Old Testament matters. Because in this, in this timeline that Paul's been giving of the history of the Old Testament, he's going to make a very noteworthy connection. He's going to make a connection from the Old Testament to the New. And what he's going to do is he's going to go from King David, that we just mentioned, that King of Israel in the Old Testament, and he's going to make a connect, connection to Jesus Christ. And in so doing, he's moving in here to the second point of his sermon, the second point of showing how all of God's workings have been moving towards Jesus Christ. Verse 23, verse 23, from the descendants of this man, he's speaking about King David, from the descendants of this man, according to promise, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus. All of God's promises, all of his covenants in the Old Testament are pointing to Christ. All of God's promises are yes and amen in Christ. But here, there is a very specific covenant, a very specific promise that Paul is referring to. It's this covenant that God made with David, this promise that, that this one would come this seed of David that would sit on his throne forever, forever. Theologians refer, this to, refer to this as the Davidic covenant. You probably know the Abrahamic covenant, the promise to David of his seed to come of the land, the Noahic covenant of the, the promise and covenant of God not to destroy the world again through a flood. Here is the Davidic covenant. Turn to 2 Samuel chapter 7. This here is the origins of this promise to David. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12. 2 Samuel verse 7, 12 through 13 is God speaking to David through the prophet Nathan. And so right there is a prime example of what I was trying to tell you. If, if you just heard the prophet Nathan... Would you know who in the world, I'm okay, prophet, he's a prophet, um, I've heard the name Nathan, I like the name, I don't know who or what he did in the Old Testament. Well, if you knew King David and you had studied King David's story, you would know Nathan, the prophet. He was very significant in David's life. See all these things just start to tie together and all of a sudden, one day, many years later, you'll, you'll have a grasp of the Old Testament. But here, 2 Samuel 7.12, um, it says... This is God speaking to David through the prophet. It says, When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you, who will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom. Verse 13, He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Forever now. This text, this covenant, this promise, this prophecy even, wasn't, of course, it was not fulfilled in David's son Solomon, even though Solomon did build a, a house and a temple for the Lord. Because only one has come in the line of David 
who has been able to be on the throne of David forever, and that is Christ. Solomon was not able to do this. Paul's going to come back to this point of how it is, he's going to return to this, how it is that Jesus, um, unlike Solomon, is able to sit on the throne forever. Um, But now, back to verse 24. Back to Acts 13, verse 24. Here we're seeing not only the Old Testament scriptures um, speak of Christ, but also John the Baptist spoke of Christ. He also prepared the way for the Lord. Verse 24, after John had proclaimed before his coming a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel, and while John was completing his course, he kept saying, what do you suppose that I am? I am not he, but behold, one is coming after me, the sandals of whose feet I am unworthy to untie. I love the humbleness of John the Baptist, this one who was willing to decrease so that Christ Jesus may increase. Because look what he's saying. Some, some people might be willing, like those who have the ESV, ESV Bible, to call themselves a bondservant of Jesus Christ. Some may be willing to call themselves a bondservant. Some may, be, may even be willing um, to call themselves a slave of Jesus Christ. But John the Baptist here says that he's not even worthy to be called Christ's slave. He's not even willing to do the work of the, the lowest slave who's going to untie the master's shoes when he comes through the door and washes feet. That's the humbleness of John the Baptist. He was the, this man was the perfect blend of boldness. This man got his head cut off because he was so bold. The perfect blend of boldness and humility, all for Christ's sake. John the Baptist, he too, just like the Old Testament, spoke of Christ. Paul continues, verse 26. Brethren, sons of Abraham's family, and those among you who fear God, to us, to us, not only those of Abraham's family, but also these Gentiles who fear God, to us the message of this salvation has been sent. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers recognizing neither him nor the utterances of the prophets which are read every Sabbath, they fulfilled these by condemning him. What Paul is saying is that in their blind ignorance, the Jews did not see that they were fulfilling the Old Testament scriptures, these scriptures that they read every single Sabbath, these scriptures that the Pharisees would have had memorized, They did not see that they themselves were fulfilling the Old Testament scriptures by killing Christ. These these men were reading the prophets. They were reading Moses. They were reading Isaiah 53. They were reading Psalm 22 in their synagogues every Sabbath. And these men did not see how they were acting out the very texts they were reading and thought that they were honoring They were working out the the Old Testament they knew in their killing of the Messiah. Verse 28, Paul goes on concerning these Jews. Verse 28, and though they found no ground for putting him to death, 
they asked Pilate that he would be executed. And when they had carried out all that was written concerning him, they took him down from the cross and laid him in a tomb. Now, these statements right here by the Apostle Paul are huge. If you would have been in that synagogue, you would have, you would have felt it. Because the Apostle Paul, at this point right here, he's putting it all on the line. He's putting it all on the line here by clearly stating that it was the, the Jewish leadership, that it was the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem, those Jews in Jerusalem who were responsible for the very murder of the Son of God. That's what Paul's saying to these Jews. Paul was accusing their very leadership of being the people um, who killed the Messiah, these people who committed the worst sin you could possibly commit, the killing of Jesus Christ. If you remember, um, this is the point in Acts chapter 7, this is the point in, in, in Stephen's sermon that the Sanhedrin um, turned into wild animals and rushed him and, and ensued in, in, in stoning him. It was at this point here that they were responsible for the death of Jesus Christ. So right here is, 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 is a, a very uh, shaky ground in Paul's sermon to state these things, but he stated them. And so now, having spoke of, of how the scriptures were fulfilled in the, in the death of Jesus on the cross, um, notice a very important point as we move on from here is that the, the apostles, I mean, anytime we get an account in the book of Acts of, 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 a, of it, it, a halfway decent and thorough explanation of the apostles' preaching, notice that they never stop in their gospel preaching at the death of Jesus Christ. They never stop there. They always go on to the resurrection, just as Paul is going to do here in verse 30. And so just as the apostles never leave it out of their preaching, you never want to leave it out of your preaching either. And so Paul has just mentioned, Paul just mentioned all the things that the Jews were doing in their crucifying of Jesus, in their, in their putting him in the tomb, all the things that man was doing to Jesus. And now Paul's going to contrast everything that man was doing in trying, in trying to thwart the work of Jesus Christ. He's going to contrast this with what God does. In Jesus Christ. Verse 30, but God, but God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, the very ones who are now his witnesses to the people. This right here in verse 30 is one of those, those all significant but God statements in the Word of God. Man was doing such and such. But God, these are very significant. And here, man is trying to kill the Messiah to thwart his work. But God raised Jesus from the dead. The miracle of the resurrection. Acts chapter 1 verse 3 told us just how long this resurrected Jesus uh, ministered around his disciples. This resurrected Jesus was there for 40 days resurrected in his glorified body, ministering to his disciples. Resurrection. And so now Paul um, is going to do what we all should do 
He's going to ground this point, this point of the resurrection. We're going to feel by the end of this that the weight and the importance, the significance of the resurrection of Jesus Christ in the Scriptures. Paul's going to ground it in the Scriptures. Verse 32, Paul says, And we preach to you the good news of the promise made to our fathers, that God has fulfilled this promise to our children, and that he raised up Jesus. As it is also written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Paul, his first text to prove the resurrection, is a quote from Psalm chapter 2. And just a very interesting side note, I thought, is the fact that, that Paul here gives us the precise location. You see that he said in the second psalm? This is the only time in the whole New Testament that any, anybody ever gives the exact reference to anything they're quoting. I, don't, I just thought that was very interesting that, that Paul does that here. Um, th- this is a very significant text, um, is maybe why he, he states that. But here Paul uses Psalm 2-7, a psalm if you know it, um, hopefully you do. This is a psalm that is obviously full of, of messianic imagery, messianic language, And Paul attributes this phrase here, you are my son, today I have begotten you. He's using this to prove the point of the resurrection. That may be interesting to you. What is is Paul getting at? What is his point, you are my son, today I have begotten you? How is he putting that with the resurrection? Well, many have stumbled over the interpretation of this text. Many have, have stumbled over the language here in that it speaks of a certain day. Today I have begotten you. This day where the Son was begotten. It's led many to think that um, what the, the text is teaching is that Jesus was not eternally the Son of God, that at some point in time, whatever this day was, today, that that's when Jesus became the Son of God. Maybe many think it was at his birth and in, in in Bethlehem, or maybe his, his baptism, some will say. Um, but this understanding is not taking into consideration one very important thing, and that's how you use the Old Testament, a very important hermeneutic for understanding quotes from the Old Testament, is that this quote would have very, had a, at first had a very um, pointed application to the time that it was given and to the people that it was given. And you must take that into consideration here. This text in Psalm 2, you are my son today, I have begotten you. This would have originally um, been attributed to and spoken about the crowning and the assigning of the throne of the king of Israel. This was something that God would have said and and did say and and pronounced over the king of, of Israel when he was crowned king. This would have been a fitting text for that. As, as the Son of God um, is used in that sense in the Old Testament, speaking of the, the, uh, the king of Israel. But here, Paul is using this in reference to Jesus' resurrection. And so, uh, what the meaning and what he's taking from this psalm is something like this. That, that I declare to you today that I begat you. I declare that you were begat, which in referring to the Son of God, as we know from the rest of the Bible, would have, would have been an eternal relationship, the eternal relationship of father and son that, that was declared on the day 
of the resurrection. Um, I hope you follow what I'm trying to say and what I'm trying to say the text is not saying. Um, Paul is simply using Psalm 2-7 to state the same reality that Paul um, says in Romans 1. Turn to Romans 1, verse 4. Romans 1, verse 4. This is, how, this is what Paul is taking from this statement in reference to the resurrection. It says, Romans 1, 4 says, Speaking of the Son, look at verse 3, concerning his Son, speaking of Jesus, who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh, verse 4, who was declared to be the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. The same truth there. Jesus Christ is being declared the Son of God in the resurrection. Jesus Christ did not become the Son of God on that day. All throughout the Gospels, he's referring to um, even himself and others are calling him the Son of God. But here, um, the resurrection is really the ultimate and the most definitive declaration by God that Jesus was his Son, that Jesus was the Messiah. This was God's stamp of approval on Jesus Christ, that he raised him from the dead. The resurrection. Verse 34 goes on to say, As for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no longer to return to decay, he has spoken in this way. Another quote from the Old Testament, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. And so now here, um, Paul is quoting Isaiah 55, 3. And here again in reference to the resurrection. Here Paul is showing how God made sure that these holy and sure blessings of David were able to continue. And why did they need to continue? Well, first they were a promise from God, so they have to continue. Um, but the reason being that they didn't continue for David was because he died. David died and, and his body decayed. But Jesus, his descendant, was raised from the dead to maintain the continuation of the blessings promised to David's descendant. The significance of the resurrection is that hill that the Apostle Paul is ready to die on because he's going to keep going on. Now he's going to point the, the synagogue to another Old Testament passage um, to prove the resurrection. Verse 35 now, Therefore he also says in another psalm, You will not allow your Holy One to undergo decay. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid among his fathers and underwent decay. But he whom God raised did not, go, did not undergo decay. This text, this quote from the Old Testament, is Psalm 16.10. This is the exact text that the apostle Peter uses to prove the resurrection in his sermon back in Pentecost. If you remember that, the same text that Peter used uh, to preach and to drive home the point uh, that these scriptures, which obviously refer to the Holy One, to the Messiah, that these could only be fulfilled in someone who has been raised from the dead. They could only be fulfilled in somebody who has been resurrected. 
And therefore, King David could not be the embodiment of these prophecies. King David's body was rotting in the tomb right there in Jerusalem. Only Jesus, this is the significance of the resurrection, only Jesus, by rising from the dead, could have these scriptures fulfilled in him. That's the, that's the resurrection. Let there be no doubt. God has given proof to all men by the resurrection of the dead. Someone uh, might be able to cause themselves to be born of a virgin in the line, line of King David. Someone might be able to make themselves born in Bethlehem to fulfill scriptures that prophesied this. Somebody might even be able to have themselves crucified during Passover to fulfill prophecy. But the resurrection, that's impossible. It's just one more thing on the list of things that Jesus Christ did that are impossible. Right? So having shown now how the Old Testament was working its way to Jesus, it was working to his life, to his death, to his resurrection, the scriptures all pointing to this, Paul now moves into the very last section here of his sermon. The very last section of his sermon. And this is what the response of the people hearing this message should be. Verse 38. Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through him forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And through him, everyone who believes is freed from all things from which you could not be freed from the law of Moses. Paul here speaks not only to what the people's response to the gospel should be, which is faith. Their response should not only be faith, but Paul also mentions here the reason the people need this Jesus that he has been preaching. What's the reason they need this Jesus? Verse 38, forgiveness of sins. That's what these people need this message for, the forgiveness of their sins. These are Jews. These are God-fearers in this temple, in this synagogue, hearing this message. These people are still, to this point, offering day by day, Sabbath by Sabbath, festival by festival, they're still continually offering sacrifices. They're still continually offering up animals in hopes of appeasing God's wrath and satisfying God's wrath. Um, but now, here, Paul has a message for them. The same message as John the Baptist. He's saying, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. These Jews were already aware of the reality of their sin. They knew they were sinners. That's why they were offering up their sacrifices. The problem was these, these sinners were never able to have their consciences clean. Their consciences were never cleaned by these sacrifices that they were offering. Turn to Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 11. As the writer of the Hebrews explains the shortcomings of the sacrificial system that these Jews and God-fearers were involved with. Acts chapter 9, 
verse 11. It says, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of bulls, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood. He entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. Verse 13, For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who have been defiled sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. The perfection of the sacrifice of Christ is what these Jews needed because they were sinners. Now, since the need of this more perfect sacrifice was necessary, Paul says in verse 38, Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through him forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Paul emphatically states the take-home of his message. This is what he's been getting at. You are right now having the forgiveness of sins proclaimed to you. This is it. This is the new covenant that the prophets have foretold. There's no better news. There's no better message. There's no better gospel that's going to come. This is not the gospel or good news of man. This is the good news. This is the gospel, as Paul calls it in Romans 1.1, this is the gospel of God. This is God's gospel. This is God's message to sinners. This is the good news. This message is better than if Paul was to stand up and tell everyone in that synagogue that they had just won a million shekels. It's better than that. It's better than him standing up and saying they were all millionaires. Nothing can compare with the forgiveness of sins. Nothing you can gain in this world. Nothing. No amount of money. No pleasures. None of these things are as significant and lasting as the gospel message of forgiveness of sins and having peace with God. What does it profit a man if, if you gain the entire world and lose your soul? It profits you nothing. You will regret it for all of eternity. And the problem is people don't grasp the significance of this. They don't grasp the significance of what you're trying to get at when you share the gospel with them. So let the people know, get to the point. Let the people know what you're offering them. You're offering them forgiveness of sins. Many people won't admit it. Most will proclaim their own goodness with their mouth. But every man knows that they are a sinner and they hate it. Every man knows. Their conscience bears witness that they've broken even the own laws in their heart. The problem is for every sinner is that they don't know how to get rid of their sin. Even for those who want to deal with their sin, most start climbing one of the, the million options, the million ropes of sand 
that this world religions offer to them, attempting to make themselves righteous enough for God. That's what most do. They try to take care of their sin through works righteousness. But here in our text, Paul very simply, very succinctly states in verse 39 that this forgiveness of sins that comes through him, meaning through Christ, is by belief. It's by faith. Pasha pastuon. It's the exact same phrase as John 3.16. The whosoever believes. The one believing. Everyone who believes will have this forgiveness of sins. It's as simple as that. Faith in Jesus Christ. It's the one who has found the grace to look away from themselves to look away from the things of this world, to look away from the things that they love more than Jesus Christ. It's the one who has found the grace to look away from these things, even things that he thinks is making him righteous, and finds the grace to look to Christ for his righteousness. This turning, it's a turning from self to Christ. And that's why Paul can say forgiveness of sins is by belief, by faith, and not even mention the word that the book of Acts has used every time up until this point for gaining forgiveness of sins, which is the word repentance. He doesn't even mention the word repentance because it's implied in the word belief. You cannot truly believe in Jesus Christ without repenting. I mean, look. What is it you're believing about Jesus Christ in the first place? Well, it's just what Paul has already quoted in verse 35 from the Old Testament. One thing you've got to believe about Jesus Christ is that he is the Holy One. Jesus Christ is the Holy One. He's the Messiah. He is the Lord. He is the Son of Psalm chapter 2 that he quotes in verse 33. And let me give you just a sample of that text from Psalm 2 that Paul was quoting from. This is who Paul's been preaching, and the Jews would have known Psalm 2. And he told them, remember exactly where it was in the Bible in case they forgot. Psalm 2 verse 12 says, Do homage to the Son, so that he may not become angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath may soon be kindled. And how blessed are those who take refuge in him. Forgiveness of sins is for the one believing in the, psalm, in the son of Psalm chapter 2. This is the one who you should believe in, and this is the one whom you should fear, lest his wrath be kindled. Don't you think that repentance and turning from sin would come naturally if you truly believe Jesus is who Paul says he is? Jesus Christ is the Lord. He is the Lord of glory, Paul says in 1 Corinthians. And anyone who actually believes this will come under his lordship in repentance. So Paul says, you're saved by faith. And that's a, that's a most assuredly a repentant faith. Any other faith is not saving faith. But that's the means. That's how you're saved by faith in Christ, this one who Paul's been preaching. 
Now, Paul goes on here in verse 39. He's going to expound upon this forgiveness of sins that one obtains by believing in Christ. Look back at verse 39. It says, Through him, everyone who believes is freed from all things. You're freed from all things from which you could not be freed through the law of Moses. Now, this word freed, this word translated freed, here's the word dikaio. Dikaio is literally the word justified. Do you know the word justified? Paul's saying, he who believes is justified from all things from which you could not be justified through the law of Moses. Paul is speaking of justification. Justification. Do you know what that word means? Do you know what that is? You need to know what it is. The Apostle Paul uses the word justification, dikaio, all the time. He uses it when he's discussing what the gospel is, what the gospel isn't, what gospel saves, what gospel doesn't. He uses it here in the book of Acts right now. He uses it in the book of Romans, in the book of Galatians. Paul is teaching the gospel of justification by faith. Justification, to define it for you, is the act of God by which he declares someone to be righteous. That's what you need. That's the, the point, the one point in time that you desperately need to happen to you. You need God to, at a point in time, say, you are righteous. Because if that moment in time has never happened, I don't care what you've been doing or what you think about your state before God, if God has not declared you righteous, you are not righteous. You are in your sin. And it's what occurs, this justification, this declaration of God that you are righteous. A justification, uh, by way I would mention, that never goes away. If God makes you righteous, you are righteous. This is what occurs at the moment of your salvation. At the moment that you truly repent and believe in Jesus Christ. God, having put all of the believer's sin on Christ at Calvary, now actually gives you Christ's righteousness when you believe, and it's on this basis that God declares you righteous. We call it the great exchange, the giving of your sin to Christ on the cross, and the unbelievable truth that Christ's righteousness is given to you. And this is why God declares you righteous. It's not because of what you've done. It's because of what Christ has done. You have, in fact, been given the very righteousness of Christ when you put your faith in him. This is all unbelievable. I know it. It's such good news, it's unbelievable. And this is what Paul is talking about here in verse 39 when he said, you have been freed or you have been justified from all the things that you have done before. God is not holding your sin into account any longer at your point of justification. No matter what you've done before, no matter what, no matter how many times you've spit in the face of Jesus Christ, 
if you will repent, truly repent and put your faith in Christ, Paul is proclaiming that you will be justified, declared righteous before God. And as long as you have breath, that offer is there for you. This is the gospel of God. And now, maybe for the riskiest part of Paul's sermon, he's, he's been through some risky territory, now for the riskiest section. The Jews, as we've talked about, have already, I'm sure, been squirming in their seats um, up to this point. But, but what Paul's going to go on to say here could very well be the breaking point for these Jews and for these Gentile God-fearers. Because look, notice in verse 39, notice the contrast here that Paul gives in his gospel presentation. The contrast is justification by faith against what? Versus what? Against the law of Moses. And oh, how those Jews loved the law of Moses. Just listen. I'm just going to, you don't have to flip there. Just listen to the words of of Jesus to the Jews in John 5, 45. He said, Do not think that I will accuse you before the Father. The one who accuses you is Moses, in whom you have set your hope. Jesus said to the, to the Pharisees, um, who, had, who were seeking their justification, who were seeking their righteousness through the keeping of God's laws. And Jesus says, that is... That is not the way to go. You're putting your hope in Moses and his law, but guess what? Moses is going to stand there. He is going to be the one, not me, that's going to accuse you that day. Meaning the law that came through Moses will accuse them and show them that they have not, in fact, been justified. Paul tells them that this gospel message of faith in Christ is the only way to be justified before God because the keeping of the law of Moses could not accomplish this. No one can keep God's laws enough to be made righteous enough to stand in God's presence. This is a, an utterly hopeless endeavor. And so understanding justification by faith, understanding how one is made righteous before God, is one of those aspects of the gospel which Paul says determines if somebody is actually saved or not. That's why I say you need to understand that word. And if you don't understand the word, at least understand the concept of justification by faith. Um, this determines if one is truly a Christian or not. This is why I say you need to know this word. Because as I said, Paul uses this all the time in explaining what is the gospel, what's not the gospel. Whether you're saved or not, whether your gospel is false or whether your gospel saves and let's just look at one example of this. Turn to Galatians 2.16. Galatians 2.16. Here in Galatians 2.16, we really have a summary statement, I think. The summary statement of the entire book of Galatians. Galatians 2.16, the Apostle Paul himself says, Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus. Even we have believed in Christ Jesus, so that we may be justified by faith in Christ 
and not by the works of the law, since by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. Do you see what I mean? Paul uses this word, justification. And here in Galatians 2.16, Paul's just drilling home, drilling home this gospel truth, this gospel message. He's repeating it over and over. You're justified by faith and not by the works of the law. Because brothers and sisters, I just want the, these categories of faith and works to be crystal clear in your mind. The only work that the Apostle Paul had mentioned in Galatians up to the point of him contrasting faith and works, he mentioned one work, circumcision. And Paul says, if you take circumcision thinking that's going to help in your justification, he takes ju uh, a circumcision as the point that if you take on just that one work of God's law, thinking that's going to help you become justified, Paul says, you are accursed. You are accursed. You are damned. You have fallen from grace, he'll go on to say. By adding one, one thing, one good thing to the gospel, one work that Moses had said to do, you add that to your justification, to your hope of salvation. If you think you have to add one single thing to faith in Christ, you are accursed and you do not know the gospel. You are not saved. That's the reality. That's the importance of this message. It doesn't matter if you think um, your works are categorized as works or not, as many are, are prone to do. Um, if you are not holding to justification by faith alone, apart from any works, you are not saved. You, don't understand, you haven't gotten grace. You have not grasped the concept of grace. And so I want these concepts to be crystal clear in your mind. Faith versus works. Faith versus works. If you get one truth from me ever, I would hope that you would hear from me the way to be saved. My worst fear is that someone in this church would be one of those who would show up and approach Jesus Christ on that day and be one of those that Jesus spoke of in Matthew chapter 7 when he said, many on that day, many on that day will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? These people declaring all their good works before Jesus Christ. Jesus, my Lord, let me in. I did all these things in your name. And Jesus is going to declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. You can't be wrong on justification by faith. You can't be wrong. I pray that none of you would hope in your church attendance, that you would not hope in your, your offerings to the church. You would not hope in, in your evangelism, your, your theological prowess. Put your trust and your hope in none of these things. Put your hope and your trust only in the righteous one, Jesus Christ. Look only to him. The law of Moses could never make anyone righteous, nor was it ever intended to do so. I'll just read to you Galatians 3.24. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. The law as with all of God's revelation to man, was to be a teacher, an instructor, telling us to look to Christ because you are unworthy. And so with all of this, 
Paul has brought home for those in the synagogue the good news of how to obtain salvation and how to be justified. Lastly, very lastly, Paul does not end this sermon on a sweet note. It's not like any Baptist preacher I've ever heard. He doesn't end this with a sweet note. Look at verse 40 and following. He says, therefore, take heed so that the thing spoken of in all the prophets may not come upon you. Behold, you scoffers, and marvel and perish. For I am accomplishing a work in your days, a work which you would never believe, though someone should describe it to you. What a way to end a sermon. Did, did Gamaliel never give a, a homiletics course to the Apostle Paul in his Pharisee school or what? Because Paul ends his sermon with a threat. He ends the sermon with a threat. In this quote, he's quoting the warning of Habakkuk 1.5. Habakkuk was the, the prophet to the people of Israel who gave this warning to Israel right before the destruction and exile of Judah in B.C. 586. The people of Israel did not heed that warning likewise either. So as I said earlier, this message of forgiveness of sins is so unbelievable, it's so radical, it's so other, that to the natural man, they would not believe, even though God has been setting all of this up since the very beginning, since the very beginning has been pointing to Christ, it's so unbelievable that the natural man cannot believe it, even though somebody has told it to them. The Son of God taking on human flesh through a virgin birth, fulfillment of thousands of years of prophecy, the living of a perfect and sinless life for the purpose of becoming a substitute for those who would put his trust in, in him, resurrection from the dead. This is truly unbelievable. Habakkuk was right. Many do not believe even though they are told. And so how is it that some find the grace to actually believe this message, this gospel of God? Well, Luke goes on to tell us why it is that some actually believe. The majority of the Jews in Pisidian Antioch here, they do not receive the message of Paul. But the Gentiles there did. And Luke, in verse 48, drop down to verse 48, tells us why some of these Gentiles believed. Verse 48, when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many has been, as had been appointed to eternal life believed. From the very beginning of the, the, the sermon, uh, with the election of the people of Israel, to the very end of the sermon, it's all by God's grace. From the beginning to end, it's all of grace. Notice again in verse 48. It's a very easily, it's a very verse, it's a, it's a verse very easily passed over. But look at it again, verse 48. The reason the Gentiles believed the gospel was because they had previously been appointed to eternal life. Luke does not say that they were appointed to eternal life because they believed. It's just the opposite. 
The grammar is conclusive here. It's because the grace of God, it's because the choice of God to save these Gentiles before the world was even formed that they eventually had the gospel brought to them and that they were given the grace to believe. And it's no different for us. We love him because he first loved us. We have been saved by grace through this glorious gospel. We've been justified by faith apart from our works. And in light of all these things, how ought we to live? Well, Peter, Paul's fellow apostle, tells us one way we ought to live. In 1 Peter 2.9, Peter gives us one of the very reasons why we were saved in the first place. I'll just read this to you, 1 Peter 2.9. He says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that, this is why you're a chosen race, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. This is one of the reasons you've been saved. And so, brothers and sisters, ask yourself, when is the last time you proclaimed the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light? How long has it been since you've shared the glorious message of the grace of Jesus Christ? We've seen from Pastor Emilio's preaching, 2 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul gave everything up to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ and we should imitate him in this and brothers and sisters look it doesn't matter who you share the gospel with it doesn't matter if it's friends if it's family if it's your if it's your children if it's people down the street if it's your it's your enemies it doesn't matter God has his people everywhere and you don't know who they are it doesn't matter the means by which you share the gospel. It doesn't matter if you have to pick up the phone, send an email, write a letter, text, Facebook even. But we want this church to be a light to the world. I still remember the very first service we hear. I remember the very first text that pa Pastor Emilio read to us at the inauguration of this church. It was in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 1. And I'm going to close right here on this verse. 2 Thessalonians 3, 1. Paul says, Finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord will spread rapidly and be glorified. And so let us together glorify the Lord by believing and spreading his gospel. Let's pray. Well, Father, you have done it again, God, and we thank you. Father, we thank you for keeping your word for us, for preserving the gospel message of the apostles for us. Father, you don't leave us wondering what the gospel is, you don't leave us searching, wondering how it is we're going to be justified before you so that we, not, we are not cast into hell for our sins. Father, you have laid it out. Father, you have worked this out 
over thousands of years. Father, and you have led us to Christ, and we thank you. Father, we cherish Christ more than everything else in this world. Father, help us to love him more. Father, help us to let go of this world. Father, give us faith. Help our unbelief, God. Help us to spread your glorious gospel. Father, before we leave, as a church, God, I pray that you would heal our pastor. Father, we pray together, God, now that you would heal Pastor Emilio. Father, bless his body. Father, heal his knees. Father, may you cause him to stand today. Father, I know he is spilling over already to get back into the pulpit. Father, heal the mouth of our church. Father, bring him back to us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.